This is a story that I don't remember, but I've been retold enough times that it's probably true. I decided I was a writer when I was four. I promised my nursery school teacher that I would dedicate my first book to her when I was four. <laughs> so I now have to write a book. You have to do it now. Yeah. <laughs> I had, until then, still been very scared of women and girls. <laughs> and when I just left home, I was still, like, very sad and lonely and quite messed up and depressed uh, and self-hating. And what feminism sort of gave me was a group of people who were who really wanted me to be okay and who really cared about you know what I cared about and so it was like it was the first group of people I felt that I really agreed with hello i'm dave i'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together i need to get better please make me better I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Nina. Hello, Nina. Hi, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a very interesting conversation for me to be having because, well, we'll get to how we know each other in a moment, which is already quite interesting. But to describe to the the listeners, you've given me a a sheet of a of a notepad with a kind of diagram of your life <laughs> uh, and this is the first conversation I've had with a diagram as the as the <laughs> okay as the structure but I, I, I like it it's going to be interesting I, I guess I sort of where it depends where I want to start yes. how how I how where I end up it's sort of I don't know how that's going to work lots of words <laughs> in bubbles and then lines linking them so yeah that's that's the kind of diagram it is the first question that I ask people is how do you know me Apart from that, I don't really. Um, yeah. <laughs> I know you from the internet. So I think last year you interviewed Martin Zoltzowstrik. Yep. He then retweeted the interview he did with you, and then I listened to that, and I liked your interview style. So then I started listening to your podcast and following you on Twitter. Uh-huh. And then you got into a Twitter argument <laughs> with a right. feminist. Yeah, that's right. And uh, the, fe- the feminist in question was... Um, right but dismissive of you and so she was uh, right I, I i thoroughly agree but she was also quite rude to you and i thought that wasn't really fair so i emailed you saying some feminists are nice <laughs> <laughs> and please don't be put off and sort of explaining perhaps why she reacted to you the way she did yeah and i, I was very grateful for that i can't say that i didn't already think what you yeah. said but i uh i certainly uh, appreciated your kind of reaching out to me and I think that is really important and uh, there are a lot of men who wouldn't necessarily be pro-feminism to begin with who might have come away from that interaction yeah. with the wrong ideas about feminism and, mm. and stuff and it might have uh, cemented some of their what I consider to be incorrect opinions and it, yeah it was a weird one because it was about the, the men's rights movement yeah. and I'm not a supporter of the men's, men's rights movement but I had read a an article that day by a guy called Ali Fogg, who I do rate, and he was sort of saying, let's not completely dismiss the men's rights movement. There are some valid points of view within it. And that's true, but they're feminist issues. So yeah, things yeah, like... they're already covered by yeah, feminists. Feminism, we don't really need. <laughs> exactly. If you, if you have a kind of feminist world, then childcare will be equal, and uh, every, everybody will have custody equally of the children and things like that. 
And I think that's a mistake a lot of men make, deciding that women are to blame for the things that oppress yeah. them, when actually, generally, men are to blame. But I'm sure there'll be some listeners already who won't <laughs> agree with me. So fair enough, I guess. But you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, so we, we, we kind of know each other through Twitter, primarily. Yes. That's an interesting thing in itself. I've never really met people Mm. (laughs) through Twitter in this kind of way before. I don't think there's probably an example of me doing it, but I can't think of it. My mum's done it a few times. She plays a game on Twitter called Articulate, which actually is like that thing you did with short stories. Okay. Yeah, no, I see that. So she plays that and she's friends with people in Australia that she's since met. So that was, that's weird. So I know that my mum has done that, met people off Twitter who are really good friends to her now. Well, that's good. It's, yeah, I thought it was weird when she made friends with people that way. Like, she became really close friends with people at the other side of the world through a word game. But she was quite isolated at the time, I think, because we lived in the middle of the countryside, in the middle of nowhere, and her link to the outside world was Twitter, and I think a lot of the people she met were disabled, so they were also housebound. So it has been known to happen. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I mean, I've certainly met people or talked to people, at least, as a result of listening to their podcasts. So there's kind of precedent Ah. set in that respect. Like, for example, Martin, the results Oxford, who I only came to know because I I reached out to him because of having listened to their podcast, Answer Me This. It's interesting as well for me because we're quite... Well, not... We're not that different in age, I guess, to to most people. Mm. But, I mean, I'm 31, you're 20. Yeah. So it's unlikely we'd come into that much contact. I don't know. I think most of my friends are between 13 and 40, so we might have if we lived in the same place. Okay. Yeah, I have... have, Well, actually, I'm increasing my amount of early 20s, late teens friends recently, but generally speaking... Some of us are all right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm working with a few people, like Bryony, who does sound for my other podcasts. She's, I think, 21, and I've got a a woman who's doing PR for Stand Up Tragedy. She's a student, so she's about 20, I think, a second-year student. I always feel like there's going to be a massive gulf in our kind of understandings of the world, but I've been disabused of that, really. So I'm, I'm, I'm realising my, my, own, uh, my own prejudices. Uh, I think if I met myself when I was 20, I wouldn't agree with myself much, you see. But I'm finding I agree with a lot of other people who are 20. So maybe I was just a particularly obnoxious 20 year I don't know, I think I'm pretty obnoxious. But <laughs> well, you're already doing better than me, because I probably would not have said I was obnoxious when I was 20, whereas now I would say I'm obnoxious. <laughs> so that's my journey. Over Christmas, this last Christmas coming, oh, yeah, yeah. I was sort of in... Uh, in Prague with my mum sort of tweeting my experience and uh, we had some kind of conversation doing the same yeah, yeah we had some kind of conversations <laughs> yeah. you were like there for me when I was feeling sad and hopefully I was there for you a bit when you've yeah. been sad and that was kind well, of nice I think nice we both experience. had really shit Christmases <laughs> yeah I've well, I, I, I rarely not had shit Christmases mm. to be honest when, when family's involved anyway which is not to say that I have problems with my family I have problems with the way that Christmas affects my family yeah. let's say I do have problems with some members <laughs> of my family, to be, to be totally honest. But yeah. I probably have problems mainly with the structure of my family, so I love them all individually, but I can't. Like, yeah. I've just spent a week yeah. with my mum and my sister, and it's really time for me to go home. Yeah, yeah, that's it, the combination. I do yeah. love them all individually. That's definitely what I would say as well. Well done for getting me out of my own hole. I've done for myself. So the second question that I ask people is, what do you do now? I write. I'm a feminist activist. I volunteer for rape crisis and I'm a mathematics undergraduate right <laughs> well, I, the mathematics I, is the thing I do least even though it probably costs me most <laughs> <laughs> 
And so, what? So you're in your second year? Uh, no, I did one year of broadcast journalism at Sunderland, which was horrible, <laughs> and then just went back to maths because it's safe and I can do it without trying too hard, which means I can do all the other things I do. Yeah, I mean, I think you can, if you want to break into broadcast journalism in the future, you, you, can, you can do it without having a background in it, I think. I maybe. think the, the degree we were on was just really cruel, I found. We were, we were taught to be really bullying in our sort of interview technique and really just sort of unkind. And, you know, we learnt things like news values, which basically, is it tragic? Does it affect someone famous? And then instead of sort of trying to subvert that, we were just playing right into it. So I got very disillusioned and left. Oh, so, God, um, it was <laughs> teaching you how to be the problems in the yes. media rather than the solutions. <laughs> okay, uh, interesting. So it's still first year. And so, and where are you, where are you studying now? Northumbria st- University, okay. which used to be Newcastle Poly. Right, okay. Yeah, my, my brother lives in Newcastle. So. <laughs> my dad's family are from there. So my granddad lives in Whitley Bay and my cousins are there and my aunts are there so I went mainly because you know how British people go to France for the summer I lived in France so I went to Newcastle for the summer every summer from when I was little so it was somewhere I knew I really love Newcastle and it's it's where all my sort of activist friends are so Okay, so you said France, and we've got a little circle on oh. this page that says France, so we can we can maybe start there, which is an interesting place to start, because okay. all of the other things are very juicy, whereas France <laughs> may, may not be, I don't know. So you lived in France, what, for your ch- for till you were, went to uni? Yeah, I, my parents moved to France in 1991, I was born in 92, and I moved Jesus, here two years old. ago. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. <laughs> So you went to school in France, what was that like? Uh, school in France is, I think, I don't know because I've never been to school in England. Well, I did, but very, very briefly. But anyway, school in France is particularly oppressive, I think. The, well, maybe school's hard for everyone anyway. But I didn't really like it because it, puts, it overemphasises science over things like arts and literature. So when you're 15, you get to choose which baccalaureate you're going to do. So already you've sort of creamed off everybody who's not very sort of academic into sort of being builders and hairdressers, and that's really how crude it is. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, those people were already gone. Then we were told choose science, economics, or languages, which you know sounds great, except languages is where you put the people who can't count. Right. And science is where you put the people who are good at languages because they're also good at maths. So to do that, it was. I didn't like that. I, ch- I nearly chose languages, but then I wasn't brave enough to do it. My sister did, and she hated it, so maybe it was the right decision. But um, Yeah, because languages is a little circle that comes off from uh, the France. So, I mean... Well, I'd, well I like language. I speak quite a few. I went to bilingual school in France because Mum started us in a state French school when we were... when I was five, I think, and it was so horrible that she just took us out of that one and put us into this hippie little bilingual school next door just out of convenience and so we learned another language we learned Breton which is like Welsh for French people yeah so learned that yeah I believe that if you I mean because I, I lived in Wales uh, so I, I believe that the Welsh can talk to people from Breton yeah. without much uh, much difficulty it's yeah yeah much the same it's language. quite the same except that I think the Welsh have done a bit of a better job at saving it in Breton pains me to say but I think it's going to die <laughs> people Welsh have been might saying die it's too, dead you know, but we'll see 
Sarah. We, we went to a sort of hippie school from like, well, it was like hippie school. They had all these, it wasn't state funded because the state won't fund Breton schools because it's not patriotic. <laughs> that is it. But it wasn't fee paying either because they're massive lefties. So it was schools that had no funding but a lot of idealistic students in charge, which was quite nice sometimes. Only idealistic students aren't trained to be teachers so we had I think when I was seven we had a teacher who didn't believe in the times tables so he just didn't teach them and, okay. <laughs> and parents came to parents evening and sort of started you know raising concerns my child isn't learning the times tables I'm sure at seven that's what they're supposed to be learning and he just said oh it doesn't matter I don't know them myself you don't need them <laughs> he went back to farming chickens the year after that and we had okay. a very good teacher the year after that sort of had to teach us two years of maths in one but that was okay. But, um, and did you connect with maths then? Then I didn't because no. I was learning, I, I was almost too old to learn a new language at that point so I was really struggling. I was bottom of the class because I couldn't understand what anyone was talking about then. I got good at maths I think maybe in secondary school. Secondary school went to boarding school which sounds posh and I've got a posh voice. I promise it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> which didn't go very well. So, if you take sort of massive teenage egos and lock them up in a school for a week together, it doesn't go well. So I went back to French state school after that, but it was probably, I don't know, I think hippie Breton school was probably better overall. (laughs) (laughs) And so, okay, so you got from, there's a little line going from (laughs) school to protest, so... Yeah, that's... There's not a lot of things about France I miss. Probably, probably I'm very unfair to France just because I was unhappy there. So now I dislike the whole country, which isn't fair. But one of the things that was better, I think, over there is if there was a protest on that day and you're in secondary school, your teachers didn't expect you to turn up. Like if you turned up to class and there was a protest going on outside, like, what are you doing? Why aren't you standing up for your rights? Get out. Yeah. So that was... I probably went to my first protest which was to try and keep our bilingual school open when I was about six. Okay. So there's often a load of children used to go on protests together. So um, one thing you got from French culture was kind of being politicised yeah, and, and, and being... quite early on. ...proactive in your activism. Yeah, yeah. It That's was, interesting. I, I was... We, um, this year we did One Billion Rising, me and other people from the Newcastle Women's Collective and my friend Clara who's at Newcastle Uni was like I'm not sure I can go I've got a lecture what (laughs) wouldn't your lecturer tell you to go and she she felt really rebellious giving a lecture to go on a protest I just thought doesn't everyone do that no they don't (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately they don't I'm not as active as an activist as I'd like when I was 15 I was in militant labour as it was called then it became the socialist party just just before I left Mm. And so I went on activist kind of things. I went on demos. I sold the papers in the in the town and discovered how unpopular that makes <laughs> it you. It does. Uh, and then I sort of became disenfranchised with the the politics of the of the organisation, and sort of left at the same time I was getting friend actual friends. And so yeah. I had a, an actual teenage teenage <laughs> years rather than uh, <laughs> rather than selling papers every Saturday. But I mean, I have been on. I went on demos when I was a teenager, and even that's quite rare, I think. So going when you're like six, that's quite. I mean, that's. <laughs> we had bells around our ankles, so my mum could find us. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. It's interesting. It's like a choose your own adventure. This, this sheet. It all but goes back to feminism. I think it like. does all end up. Well, yeah, that's right. The kind of writing feminism 
and some other yeah there's some other things I don't want to I don't want to spoil other big, the big ones but so going from school I, could, I mean I could either go back to France and then across to class and family or I can go down to where I'm going to go so uh, going from school you've got bullying down which is Aww. something that I'm sorry that you've experienced I've also experienced it so what was your experience of bullying? Uh, I was bullied I think sort of passively at primary school I was really odd in fairness you could have put me anywhere, I probably would have been bullied. I was a very strange child. It, it got really bad in secondary school, and the thing about France is there's some words that, British, um, that we've got in English that the French don't have, and bullying is one of those words. They haven't even got a word for it, so there was no school policy, you know. So it was just child's play and let them deal with it. But So it was this very small, hippie school, and there were about... You picking up okay? I'm picking up fine. Don't worry. I move right. it around sometimes, but it doesn't doesn't. You shouldn't. You don't pay attention to me. Pretend I'm not here. Okay. Um, this group of about twenty girls who would have been my age and one year older, so that have been sort of ten, eleven, twelve year olds, and there was one girl who was sort of very, very popular, and who sort of just controlled all the other ones. And it wasn't like I've noticed often when boys get bullied, they get beaten up, basically. Yeah, sometimes. Girls are sort of cleverer about it in that they never well they don't get caught because it's sort of all about status and intimidation. So I was ostracised by sort of all the girls because I was odd and ginger and unpopular and British. But um, it was there wasn't an escape because I was you know going you know going to bed at school and so I was there all the time. It was just things like if we were all getting into the coach to go to the dorms, I couldn't get in until they'd all gotten. Or, you know, if we were going to yeah. eat, I couldn't go in until they'd all eaten. And sort of, you know, they'd come into my room in the evenings and just sort of wreck the place, so I'd hide in my wardrobe and they'd steal my clothes and stick them down the toilets, things like that. God. I, <laughs> I'm all right, I promise I'm not that damaged. Sure. I mean, I, I just feel bad for you because, I mean, I was... I was kind of I mean as a podcast listener you've probably heard some of this but mm. but I mean I was quite badly bullied at school but at least I could go home at the end of the day so like I do feel for you in that respect like I I mean I literally stopped going in year 11 I, I stopped going into school how old are you year 11 um, what's that 15 maybe mm. around that age uh, no maybe 16 I, I stopped going into school, like into lessons completely. I basically like went. I went into registration and then I went out with my six former friends, uh, who didn't have to go to lessons, and I didn't go to any of my lessons apart from the ones I liked. But I, the main reason was I didn't want to be in the corridors because that was the dangerous yeah. time. I mean, it's interesting what you say about uh, boys often being beaten up. I think that is true, but that wasn't the way I was bullied. I was bullied verbally mm-hmm. mostly, and by girls and boys. Um, the boys were probably worst uh, just because uh, well just because in that particular culture in that particular culture of that school those boys were worse to me I'm sure they were, there was people getting real brutal treatment from the girls but it was um, it was very much like I was like a scapegoat I guess I was like everywhere I went they used this particular nickname and so uh, it became like it was like I always describe it as like water torture like everybody's just dripping one yeah. drop and they're not thinking anything of it and they're not being particularly horrible they're just going oh that's the boy that we go Melvin Melvin yeah. like but when that happens every minute of every day that you're at school from yeah. everyone it just becomes very very 
oppressive. So I, 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 I feel your pain. And I'm not that damaged either, uh, honest, as well. But, I mean, it, beca- it does become part of who you are. It does. Uh, it, well, it made me a feminist who didn't like women for years. Yeah. And it, it, that was really weird. So well, maybe a man who doesn't like men. So. <laughs> It was like, yes, I'm, I'm definitely a feminist, but I really don't like girls. You know, it was, I, probably, I wasn't a proper feminist, I suppose, but I was, it was probably mainly fear than hatred. But I had nicknames as well, and they sort of, they managed to make the nicknames follow me to a new school. So in, in, the, end, in the end, I changed schools because, um, well, the bullying sort of, it had mostly been sort of emotional. But uh, we were walking to the gym with, in our PE class, and they sort of tried to push me under a car, and... I, I didn't get run over, I escaped, but we complained to the headmaster and the headmaster refused to even call their parents in. So I changed school, went to French state school, and the nicknames followed me. Um, I found out what had happened was the bullies from the old school had contacted the bullies from the new school on Facebook and sort of passed on all the nicknames and the stories. And yeah, you the, see, now that's something I'm grateful for. I was bullied <laughs> before Facebook. <laughs> and I think if I, if I, now, like when I'm saying to you, mm. oh, I'm glad that like I could go home at the end of the day, if I had Facebook, I wouldn't be able to go home yeah, at the end of the day because they'd still be able you. to contact yeah. me. Yeah. I wasn't even on Facebook. They just sort of linked between them. I don't know how they found out what school I was going to, but it was sort of organised in such a way that it continued till I was about it's amazing. 16, 17. It's amazing that kids do this sort of thing. <laughs> I mean, it, they do cool. definitely do it. I've, I've definitely experienced that strange organisational structure yeah. of bullying uh, where, yeah, people do seem to like be passing information on. Yeah. I mean, uh, as a, yeah, I mean... You can sort of decide to see them as damaged, and that's why they're doing it. That's how I uh, do see them, yeah. Yeah. You don't want to decide that all children are evil. They're just It's quite hard being a child, and it's quite hard being at school. Well, school's brutal, yeah. and if you want to survive, you have to be a survivor. You have to be one of the winning people. Yeah. And in order to win, you have to find some people to lose, and I think that's kind of how it works. Probably. I definitely think that I feel a lot of sympathy for the people who bullied me. I think a lot of them probably had very hard times at home. Certainly I had a hard time at home, which is I think what they picked up on as well. Like the thing that made me damaged was my home life. And uh, when I came as an English, again, similar thing of, of being an English person in a Welsh school, damaged one that reads books and hasn't got any friends yet. <laughs> Like they, yeah. they could, they could Such sense. A soft they could sense it, and they, they, and and also they knew if they prodded me, I would react. Mm. Um, and I, I, I understand that that I'm not, I'm not to blame for it, but uh, the inability to not react is definitely part of the problem. Like, yeah. But, and uh, but maybe that's what makes people activists. Maybe that's what <laughs> makes them angry and get yeah. active. So maybe these things kind of even out. So there's a line, a big curvy line going from the bullying to mental health okay yeah okay I'm a bit fucked up but um (laughs) I don't know I mean like mental health issues is are more frequent and common than than everyone feels like they are yeah like we all feel like we're the only like we're we all feel isolated and that's the sad thing okay um I was I was probably depressed for most of my life which is really sad to like because I'm happy now I realised that I wasn't then. Yeah. So I can sort of... I look back and from age probably about 9 to 19, I was just miserable uh, because I was very, very lonely because I was bullied and didn't have any friends. It was very strange. and like, My family life was quite shit as well. So 
it was it takes a long time to sort of work out how you cope and sometimes you think oh I wasn't coping very well and actually it's just I don't think I'm better now through any sort of you know magic cure that I've come up for myself it's just I'm in such a better environment Mm -hmm. so yeah I I feel that way too (laughs) I was thinking oh you know I haven't tried hard enough to get better oh I haven't thought of the right coping mechanisms actually I was just it was probably just that I was in a really shit situation and you know if also if you've got people who are depressed and alcoholics and unhappy in your family you're probably going to end up with that you know maybe you could have put me anywhere and I would probably have been a depressed teenager because you know my dad was depressed and there's a history of it and if you also put those people with that history in that context they're going to be unhappy well, yeah. I mean, again, I'm I'm sort of similar in that my mum certainly is uh, depressed, and I've certainly in- inherited some of those some of those qualities. It's a nice. Do you think it's genetic, or do you think yeah, it's because I do actually? You spent time around her when she was unhappy. I think they're both. Rele- I think they're both relevant. But I think it is genetic, but I think that it doesn't help. Also, having been in that environment. That said, I'm not sure I've got it as bad as she has, or as unfortunate as she has I mean I don't know my mum and my kind of depression is much more rage based than a lot of people's depression so uh, I'm lucky in that respect that I don't have well I actually these days I do some like sometimes get like months of bleak uh, depression but generally speaking I've been much more angry than depressed in my life Uh, it's still a dangerous thing can be uh, it can also be very unproductive. Uh, but, but yeah, I think I can't work out nature-nurture, but the way I see it is it goes back to the same people. Yeah. <laughs> Whether you're <laughs> blaming the, the genes and, or yeah. the And I'm not yeah. blaming my mum. I mean, my, my dad's not, not very depressed. And in fact, my dad is, like, a, a big reason for the, the, the more... The, the better, like some of the better qualities mm. in me. Although I've got some good qualities from my mum, I've come to realise as well. But my stepdad certainly had a, a very bleak life as well, and so that had a big influence over like the way I related to things. And also, my stepdad hit me a little bit, and my mum hit me a little bit, and shouted at me and said some some things that, as as we've actually communicated in the emails, <laughs> uh, said some things that contributed to my my issues. If you like, you are also from a kind of divorced situation. Yes, this is my opinion, and it's not the truth necessarily. But I think they should probably have split up. I don't know after they had my youngest sister. That would probably have been like they would have still got the kids, and they wouldn't have had to put up with each other. But my mum really, really, really believed that her children needed a dad, no matter how destructive he was. So she for years stayed with him for us even though their relationship was clearly really messed up Um, and it took till I was 16 for her to realise that it wasn't good for us either but so until then we were just we were the children of a very very unhappy couple and you know a couple that shouted we are the sweariest family family that I know just because they screamed at each other all the time when did it start? I don't remember them not arguing. I don't remember them being happy. Every memory of my dad that I have, he's either drunk or miserable. You know, the the best memories I have of him are when he was drunk. 
because then at least he sort of smiled and told stories but yeah. he was very unhappy I've never known him happy um, and my mum really I think she had a lot of hope for him to start with when she married him and decided to have children with him she thought he would get better she thought that having children would stop him from being an alcoholic which it didn't just made it worse really and yeah children never are, <laughs> never save everything in those kind of ways necessarily. no but i was expected to well, actually i don't actually want to say never ever because i think my my little sister had a child and that, that helped her out quite a lot but that's an accident that's just a coincidence mm. you shouldn't use it as a as a solution well my mum really wanted really wanted children yeah. really 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 did so i was like such a wanted child well, that's nice which you know it's nice she, she loves me more than anyone in the world but she had me with somebody who didn't want children, really. And it took me a while to work out that he didn't want children. I thought he wanted a son. So he, he had three daughters. I was the oldest. And uh, when we went down the street, when, we were, well, when I was really young, uh, in this was a village in the south of France where I was born, and the old women would stop my dad and go, oh, you poor thing, you haven't got a son, or mock him because he couldn't make Y chromosomes. You know, they were properly mean to him about not having a son in front of us that's very really ridiculous <laughs> so I thought he wanted a son so like, I tried to be a boy for 10 years it didn't work <laughs> and I'm glad it didn't work but he, so he was very angry and very sad always and he always resented her I think for having the children yeah, because he doesn't know how reproduction works. Clearly, um. <laughs> I mean, I can. There's so many things I can relate to about this because I mean, I mean, I'm, I would say that my mum probably didn't want children particularly. Uh, I don't think. I mean, my dad always felt like I was very wanted from him. Although I don't know if he necessarily wanted children, but when they happened, he loved them mm. pretty unconditionally. Whereas I think my mum had children because well, she did want children in some ways but certainly when I was an adolescent when she had a breakdown she spent a lot of time telling me I, I wasn't wanted and wasn't a, and was a mistake and stuff like this but uh, like the other thing I can really relate to though is the experience of being stuck in a house with people who aren't happy trying to make a go of it because that wasn't my dad they my mum and my dad split up before I was even conceived um, but but it, that was my stepdad. Like my stepdad and my mum, between the age of eight and twelve, tried to make their marriage work. And I always say to people, get divorced. <laughs> Definitely get divorced. As somebody who's experienced parents trying to make a go of it, get divorced for the sake of your children, yeah. and then afterwards, both be there for your children. That then your then you then you then you can have a kind of. It's much better to do that than staying together for the sake of your children because it isn't for the sake of your children. Because look, look what happens, <laughs> you know. But that's well, my parents stayed together two years after they split up in the same house. Ah, see, so so lots of lots of <laughs> here. Yeah, it was so they split up. Well, my dad sort of had a particularly unhelpful and unpleasant exchange with me when I was sixteen. We were in Newcastle together, so my mum wasn't there and. My dad went off to smoke pot for a week, and so I escaped and went and stayed with one of my mum's friends. And so he tracked me down, because he knows I like museums, so he just went and hung around the museums until I turned up, which I did, and then had this massive shouty argument and shouted at me, you know, you ruined my life, basically. Wow. Your mother stopped loving me after you were born. This and like <laughs> the inverse of my conversation I had around that age. Yeah, go on. Sorry. <laughs> 
it's, it's a bit weird, isn't it? <laughs> it's a strange experience to be held accountable for your existence. <laughs> <laughs> what happened was, well, he had this. He shouted at me for like quite a few hours until we got. So I walked back to my mum's friends, but then I was locked out. So we just stood outside Rachel's, and he shouted at me. And then Rachel came home and heard that and phoned my mum. And then my mum realised that sort of my dad wasn't particularly good for me. And so she decided to break up with him and he said, no, this isn't happening. And she asked him to move out and he didn't. And so she moved out to a caravan in our garden. So she lived in a caravan in our garden for two years while he was living in the house, or living in their bed, sleeping in their bed. She was out in the garden and we were in the house. And that was... I was okay with it. I was about to move out. I was at school and I was okay, but I think it really affected my youngest sister quite badly because, you know, once mum had gone to bed, that was it. She wasn't available. She was out in the garden and, you know, if she's got a problem, go to dad. Dad can't really deal with us, so... That sounds incredibly complicated. And she's I'm, moved out now. You know, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry to, to hear about it too, but, I mean, how did, like... How, I mean, do you have a, any kind of relationship with your dad now? I moved out when I was 19... And I kept in touch with my mum and my sisters and my dad didn't contact me for six months and I realised I was much happier without him being in my life so after six, six months after I moved out I decided I didn't really want anything to do with him anymore and I think I wrote to him to tell him uh, he got very very angry and having sort of ignored me for six months sort of started phoning all the time and texting and I ignored that and then he came to Newcastle and sort of frightened my friends like I was living with some friends and he just like hammered on the door and shouted at them I'd moved away from there because I knew he'd track me down and uh, he sort of tried to trick me into seeing him and then I agreed to see him to sort of iron things out and he didn't turn up <laughs> so I don't have a relationship with him now but my sisters still do do you, do you want one with him? Uh, I think not talking to him is the most peaceful way I can be with what happened. I, I would like to be mature enough to be able to have a relationship with him, but I know that at the moment I'm too angry and disappointed in him and he's too angry with me. There's no shame in having a break. Like, I think one of the... I mean, you know, sometimes when I talk about my mum... It sounds like she's all bad, but she ain't. And one of the things that she always says to me is, you know, you might need to not speak to me for years. <laughs> I haven't felt the need of being that, that extreme yet. But certainly I think she did that with her mum, and I think her sister did that with her mum for a bit. They sort of took it in turns to be the ones communicating. When you've got a difficult parent, mm. uh, I think there's no shame in, in having a break. Uh, at all. It would be nice to have quite a long break, I think, yes. until he grows up yes. or something. Yeah, well, <laughs> until you can both look back at it with a little bit of distance rather than being hot about <laughs> it, like your feelings being very raw about yeah. it. Like it's good to, to have a break, for sure. So all of those, so you, you, mental health, depression and genetics all connect with writing. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> my dad's an artist. Right. My dad paints and sculpts very well and draws very well. My mum thinks I inherited an ability to draw. I don't think that's possible, but she thinks that I inherited an ability. So I can just, I can sort of draw still life quite easily, even though I don't much anymore. So she thinks that I inherited that. I think 
She writes, though. My mum writes. And I've always written. This is a story that I don't remember, but I've been retold enough times that it's probably true. I decided I was a writer when I was four. I promised my nursery school teacher that I would dedicate my first book to her when I was four. <laughs> so I now have to write a book. You have to do it now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I've been... Com- nearly 15 years ago I haven't done it yet I don't know whether you can inherit artistic traits no so you what don't do you reckon well you're clearly you're sceptical of it I think you can my dad's a writer my mum's an artist uh, like I hope that I can improve on some of the qualities in their work that I think is it is, is flawed and I I hope that uh, I've inherited the strengths that they have in their work but certainly when I look at the way I, I think about art or the way I think about writing, um, it seems to me that I don't know if it's nature or nurture exactly, but it does seem like my brother's an art. He draws... Don't you think like, that's just from being around people who are creative? I don't know. I think that genetics are so important. Like, science would suggest, like, the study of genetics currently. I mean, you'll probably know more about this than me because you're more scientifically minded, I, I think at least math, more mathematically minded, I'm, I'm rubbish at math. But, like, everything I read about genetics suggests to me that it's more, more significant than, than, you know, people in the past thought, because people in the past didn't know about genetics, really, until Darwin started working it all out or whatever. On the other hand, it's really easy to, like, put anything down to genetics at the moment, because it's a massive growth field, so you can put, you know, you can analyse anything sure. and sort of peg it it's on like genetics. It's like neuroscience yeah. as well, yeah. But the thing is... In a way, I guess it doesn't matter if it's genetics again. It doesn't matter if it's nature or nurture. We got these good qualities either from being exposed to these things in our parents or from having the genes from our parents. I mean, if it's not genetics, then our parents are better parents than we might (laughs) fear. I think I really want to believe that everybody's got a good artist in them. Ah, that, yeah. I want to believe that too. (laughs) I believe it on a good day. I think it is true. But not necessarily a dedicated artist or a, That's or where a successful the parents come in. artist. Yeah, maybe. And, you know, I think probably it takes years of being nurtured, even when you're writing complete rubbish, to get anywhere interesting. And I think I was very lucky in that, you know, my mum encouraged me. You know, I, I wrote really rubbish stories as a four-year-old. <laughs> well, yeah, you, you <laughs> but she's kept them all and she loves them and she encouraged me unconditionally. And her friend Sarah... So my mum's got this one friend, Sarah Bakewell, who's a moderately famous writer. Who just I started emailing Sarah my stories when I was 11, and Sarah never said they were shit, <laughs> and they were. Yeah, but, well... But she just, you know, encouraged, and I that's think That's the not job of adults, not that. to tell them that it's shit. <laughs> and, to, to, and also, you know, what you, when you look back at it and you see it as flawed, if you're an adult looking at some really good, like, child's work, you're not, you're not going, this is of adult quality you're going I see things within this that suggest something to nurture and I, I think I that was done to me by my mm. by my father and by uh, by other friends of the family and stuff and, and I think that is very helpful and it does it does get you to this place where you can believe yeah. that you can be a writer or yeah. uh, I mean that's just the start of it because believing in yourself then it's you've got to enough. convince everybody else that you're a good writer and that takes years I mean I'm I'm 31 and I'm still trying to convince everybody that I'm a good writer um, but I think I do think that everybody has a story like, I think everybody has art art in them I think everyone appreciates art I think like Ira Glass has got a good thing about um, 
don't like you, you shouldn't trust the work you're making you should trust the taste you have like that everybody starts off not able to realise what yeah. they like and our job as, a, as artists or creative people or whatever is to to work out how to make our stuff as good as the stuff we like but if mm. but everybody's everyone knows what they like you know yeah, yeah. so everyone has artistic sensibilities and certainly doing this podcast or uh, I do a, a true storytelling night called Spark that definitely has, has taught, taught me that everyone has stories yeah. that are worth hearing and that, that actually so many stories aren't heard because writers tend to be of a certain class and they tend to be yeah. of a certain gender even and they tend to be of a certain world view and mm. so we're only really hearing um, just a fraction a fraction typically like a yeah um, and I, I definitely believe in in hearing more people's stories so it all leads to feminism as you say like uh, family marriage and divorce uh, mental health they're they're all connecting to feminism I mean I can't for, for the life of me understand why you'd be against patriarchy from uh, from what you've been saying to me but 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 yeah what does feminism mean to you as a 20 year old in the modern world it's I think I've, I've always identified as a feminist, but that's mainly because my mum did. And I think as a teenager, actually, I probably wasn't. Or I was a feminist on my own, which isn't much good. You know, just, like, hating patriarchy in your own room, sulkily, doesn't really help. Lacking but, uh, <laughs> the solidarity part. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but um, when I went to Sunderland Uni, I thought, this is great, everyone's going to be a feminist. Yeah. And, and then they weren't. I had a similar <laughs> feeling when I went to university and... <laughs> was also disappointed. So, oh, everybody More to do with anti-capitalism for me at the time, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. So I, th- I thought, I'll join the feminist society, and there wasn't one, so I had to make one. What? Um, <laughs> <laughs> which is unlike me, because I'm, I can't deal with large groups of people. But um, So I reached out to the Newcastle Women's Collective about this time last year, actually. So joined them. Uh, and then I sort of... The, the feminist society at Sunderland failed and then I left. Well, no, I left and then it flopped over because I wasn't there holding it up. But um, what it got me was this group of women in Newcastle. And I had, until then, still been very scared of women and girls. <laughs> and I just found this... And like, when I just left home, I was still like very sad and lonely and quite messed up and depressed. Uh, and self-hating and what feminism sort of gave me was a group of people who were who really wanted me to be okay and who really cared about you know what I cared about and so it was like it was the first group of people I felt that I really agreed with and it was interesting because I went from like being or having either no friends or being friends with boys and men to like my main peer group for about half a year was like middle-aged lesbians, which is fine. She's <laughs> <laughs> completely fine, but uh, it led to confusions. But um, <laughs> sure, yeah. it was they saved me, and and I became an activist. Uh, I so I went on a pro-choice protest, I think. Yeah. 28th of April last year and then I got involved in organising uh, the North East Feminist Gathering which was 
we're going to do that every year now we're having another one this year but it, the first one was last year and I was on the organising committee of that which was like a women only conference over two days in Newcastle for sort of northeastern women and that was that was really important not just I thought when I was doing it when I was organising it I thought I'm doing this for the greater good and women and actually it really benefited everyone on the organising committee really personally I yeah. made really close friendships with people which the revolution starts in yourself yeah I think feminism sort of what it gave me was self acceptance and self acceptance sort of allows you then to accept everybody else because while you don't like yourself it's really hard to you know even be very nice to other people so I think it's probably made me nicer although less tolerant of misogynists <laughs> well you know that's not necessarily a bad thing so that was a female only space you yes have. do you I mean that's on your I, I, I'm I was going to a, ask you about that actually. I'm such a bad like feminist I don't even know like the male or female signs but that, I've worked that out that that women. means female yeah <laughs> yeah so I mean you were going to ask me about that. What I was going to, well, because you're a male feminist. See, this is what happens when you identify as a feminist. You get asked to speak for your kind. Yeah, just the other day in the pub, some <laughs> a, a guy said to me, "You're the only male feminist I know," and I was like, "Whoa, hang on, now I'm going to have to talk for people." I'm going to do the same thing to you now. Cool. Do it. <laughs> what What do you, as a male feminist, think about women-only space? I think they're absolutely valid and incredibly important. I'm sure for the people who do it. I mean, obviously, I wouldn't be. In, able to get involved in that no. but I, I don't have a problem with that okay so a lot of male feminists do have a problem with it but I, it's something that I call it my current battle <laughs> I, I have battles and this is one of mine at the minute because when we were organizing the conference for a while there was talk about it being mixed for quite a while and then my very good male friend but also uh, he wants to be a feminist but he also quite likes his privilege so sure. he's not there yet well, uh, privilege is you know <laughs> privilege is enjoyable that's the whole reason that people hold on to it so tightly he, he doesn't he's completely blind to it but anyway it's not his fault but he, <laughs> <laughs> he upset everybody else on the organising committee including me he just made some very ill-advised sexist joke at a bunch of sort of very political feminists which obviously isn't going to go down very well but um yeah and then we sort of had a vote i wasn't there at the time but they had a vote and decided to make it women only and i was really skeptical at the time i think quite a lot of the younger feminists were so you know we want everything to be mixed we want everyone to be included but what happened was well i was scared of women only space anyway because i was scared of women but yeah <laughs> What yeah, I'm scared of male-only spaces. <laughs> I can identify with that. We had um, so we had a women-only open mic, which we decided to call an open Mary. Now that's <laughs> someone else's idea. That's it's not my idea. You see, uh, I mean, obviously, feminists got no sense of humour. Well, clearly, we're all really <laughs> cross all the time. Yeah, sure. And what happened was, people who would never have got up in mixed space got up, and we found that people are so talented, and women, I think, often have an extra barrier to sharing what they're good at. I mean, I, th I think it's very difficult for men as well, but you know, for women there's another layer, and taking that one away, also getting them a bit drunk. Yeah, that <laughs> helps. And you find out that people are incredibly talented, and I think my friend Clara puts this very well. She says often when men think they're geniuses, women think they're mad. And, yeah. you know, actually they'll be the same. They're probably both mad geniuses, but... <laughs> 
so what's happened with that is I sort of feel strongly for those spaces now even though I feared them before and that's what's happened with a lot of younger women that I know who are very in favour of them now we're trying to set up a monthly Open Mary in Newcastle at the moment which is sort of happening kind of now I think I've had one already but it was a £10 entrance fee so no one went so I mean in that in that context it, it will be women only in the audience as well as yes. on the stage the, the aim isn't to sort of make them never want to perform in front of men it's to sort of empower them to sort of feel like they can because I think it's much safer and much easier in front of a women-only audience to start with. I mean, I can see the argument for that, and, and I, I, I absolutely feel that... There's two things I feel about this. I feel like there are a lot of women, and they're not all women, and there are lots of women who have a very, I guess, ma- male-style privilege of not having experienced the worst yeah. elements of patriarchy. A lot of them are my very good friends, yeah. and uh, or, uh, my partner even. And so... For them, like the idea of a woman-only space seems very strange because they have mixed friends and mm. they they have safe they feel safe in mixed company. Yeah. But there are lots of women who don't, and there are lots of women who've had very serious, extreme acts of violence or uh, sexual or, mm. or just or just for just physical uh, violence done, you know, committed to them by men. And you don't get them to feel safe by having men around. And if if, if I feel bad about that, uh, and I should, it's that, that, that people of my gender have, have made those women uh, have a bad uh, relationship with my gender. Mm. And it's my job as a male feminist to get the men to stop being dickheads yeah. in that kind of way. Um, more than it's the job of women to do that, because they, they've got to try and fight for their rights. I'm in the privileged position of being able to say, uh, to, to, to uh, advocate my gender pull our fucking act together and, and, and do something about it but so I do feel that the validity of a, a female only space but I also think that we can't progress uh, at all and, and, and until both genders are involved in in the struggle if you like or yeah. like you can't have peace for example the, the example I always use is you can't I think I've used it to you in an yeah. email you can't have peace in, 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 in Israel unless the Israelis also are at the table with the Palestinians and that the, the Israelis will have to uh, hope maybe it'll never happen but if it ever happens they'll have to climb down they'll have to recognise their privilege their situation and without them at the table you can't have peace yeah. and I think that's the case in, in gender I think that's the case in race I think that's the case in, in all of the intersections that we have because I'm consider myself to be an intersectional feminist even though intersectional feminists I find often to be unfortunately unhelpful in that they are dev- quite quite quick to condemn mm. and I find that problematic because I because I want everyone at the table I want us to 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 try and be empathetic with each other to not write each other like for me to not write you off for having a female only space um, and I would advocate lots of men doing that but I would also advocate female feminists not writing off men who don't use the right language uh, not writing off radical feminists completely even though I have a lot of problems with radical feminism too like I don't want to write off anyone Mm. I want to have us all at the table Uh, what I'd say about that is 
we're not asking for women only space all the time sure we're asking absolutely. for an evening a month exactly <laughs> no, absolutely and that's why I'm, that's why I'm fully I, supportive I, I of these kind of ideas I want men on side as well and most of the feminists I, I don't know any separatists so, no so <laughs> I think they died out in the 80s but um well, they're, uh, they're around are they, are they? You, you can meet them on Twitter if you want <laughs> but I don't revise it I don't think it. I want to <laughs> <laughs> um I but most of the feminists I know want men to be involved but there's a lot of feminist fatigue in that when you have to sort of I think feminism's been guilty of being very patronising to men and sort of very sort of well actually sort of over-mothering them and I, I don't think I think often when we try and include men we end up telling them you know what to do and, and I think that is necessary to an extent but also it's not for us to drag you in it's for men to recognise their own interests in it, in that feminism wouldn't just make things better for us, it would make them a lot better for you. Oh, sure. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm converted to that already. I mean, absolutely. Like my, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a male feminist, if, as I have come to describe myself, um, because it's... But first of all, it's better yeah. for me. Yeah. Because I, I, you know, I really enjoy talking to human beings of both genders, mm. and that I consider them all to be my equal. Um, when we have these divisions, we don't, we don't. Uh, I can't talk to people in the same way that I'd like to. Um, and I've seen patriarchy in my own like upbringing, as you have, uh, affecting, you know, my mother. Mm. Um, and I, so I've seen it in a very personal sense, and I, I'm really a believer in the idea of the personal being the political. And so, uh, I think patriarchy hurts men. You've got that in one of your circles, <laughs> and I like that. I do think it hurts men, but it doesn't hurt us as much as it hurts women. No, so, so we have to kind of yeah. realise that it. First of all, it hurts us, and second of all, we might be hurting people. Yeah. But then that said there are feminists or feminisms that hurt women in my view as well so it's a very complicated thing like I'm or protect patriarchally protect them I see that as patriarchal you know so uh, not listening to women's experience and deciding what's best for women that's a patriarchal behaviour well I think this is probably where I am on male feminists at the moment is if we can have Tory feminists, <laughs> yeah. if we can have Louise Mensch, I think we can have you, basically. Yeah, yeah. The idea that you can't have male feminists comes from the idea that you can have an ideal feminism and an ideal feminist. And probably the reason why... I've changed my mind on this loads of times. I'll probably do it a few more. But yeah. in the times when I've thought men couldn't be feminists, it was because I thought there are experiences that you'll never have to do with sexism which not that you're bad but just you won't experience it yeah. so you won't know but then I'm white and middle class yeah. <laughs> and there are sexist you know, there is oppression that's sexist that's never going to be levelled at me either so my experience of sexism isn't completely well it's not total either class there yeah. are lots of working class feminists who feel very marginalised I think by by the the focus of uh, the feminist women who have got some gains uh, not necessarily looking around and saying who needs to gain yeah. as well um, and it being a lot about who gets into equal who gets equality in the boardroom yeah. and less about 
who are being affected the worst by the cuts. But then that's all very that's all very complicated as well. My relationship to feminism is. I mean, I'm, I'm with Laurie Penny, I think, who said something along the lines of recently, feminism shouldn't be as limited as going, let's have men and women both in the military. We should be getting rid of the military. Yeah. And uh, we shouldn't be, like, looking for equality in the boardroom, in my view, because I have a problem with boardrooms, how they work, how that is just a very small percentage of people having all of the wealth and power. Yeah, power being the almost more important than wealth, although... <laughs> that's together. not exactly the, yeah exactly and, and somebody who has no wealth has absolutely no yeah. power um, so they are linked yeah I think I think we have we haven't got a revolution yet no. <laughs> that's my point it's, sure I, a lot of communists <laughs> I know sort of go oh but of course I'm a feminist because I'm a communist and that's, that's not true yeah. I don't know Is about having women in the military or women in boardrooms I think as long as we have them we should try and get more women into them, but really they're shit. And I agree. We shouldn't have them. I mean, that's that is. That, I mean, one of the things I call myself is pragmatic, and and, and, and so I, I I agree with that. Like, I think if we have the military, it's ridiculous that we can't have equality of service. But I would rather but we got really, rid of the military. We should get rid of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do you see your feminism? Kind of progressing. I mean, you, you, you're active and you're radical, which is more than me. I, I, I share a lot of links on Twitter, but that's not the same as actually being active. But then you could say that that's privilege in a way that I, 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 I don't have, I don't have such a. I'm not coming up against class and a pre- and uh, patriarchy and all of these things to the same degree that maybe I even was once in my past and so I can kind of be like oh I'll just share that link on Twitter I don't have to actually get out there and take up some of my valuable time with that stuff you know I mean where, I where are you I don't at? think anyone stays radical forever <laughs> I like the women I know who are sort of in their 40s and 50s they're doing brilliant work but they don't do it all the time because they can't because you have to live and you can't you can't go on every demo you can't organize every conference you can't be at every meeting it's what I've been learning at the moment because you just get burned out and I've got burned out some of my friends have got burned out we go we go to all these meetings we're in like a meeting four nights a week and you know we're supposed to be doing degrees at some point (laughs) and I have exams in three weeks yeah I, I want to keep doing as much as I can, but what I've realised recently is that feminism can only... Feminism that I do can only be helpful while it's helpful to me. And um, so I need to not completely get engulfed in it to such an extent that I'm not sleeping. That was an Audre Lorde quote, I think, that she said, caring for myself is not a self-indulgence, it's... An act of political warfare. Okay. So if that's nearly the quote, and I knew it a minute ago, but there's a microphone on. Yeah. Um, I'll look it up later. They can Google it. I think being creative as a woman is also political. I think trying to sort of break through in whatever you're doing as a woman is a feminist thing to do. So if I'm doing okay. I'm not pushing other women down, I'm bringing them up with me, so I'm choosing to look at it, or you know, I might just be being selfish. What I'm interested in at the moment is women being empowered to be creative. That's what we're doing with the Open Mary Nights in 
Newcastle and sort of Northumberland is we're trying to empower women to be creative rather than just put themselves down before they've started which is often what happens yeah I'm sure though a lot of people will maybe who are listening maybe who aren't listening but don't people say you know surely we've achieved equality now and you're a young girl you've got so many advantages compared to the past generations you're just trying to trigger me no I'm not I mean I'm not trying to trigger certainly not trying to trigger you but I'm sure that that's a a criticism you come up against it's it's a criticism I come up against all the time and I'm I'm on a male-dominated course there's like 10% of women on my course I'm doing mathematics yeah you know nearly all of my lecturers except one are men and white as well that's a different thing but you know it's we're not there yet in terms of reproductive rights we're not there in terms of pay we're not there even in the UK and that's just looking at me and you know I'm privileged and white if you look anywhere else in the world it's really shit for women well it's shit for a lot of men as well but it's more shit for women if you look at what the UK is doing to lesbian asylum seekers it's really shit even if I'm relatively okay it doesn't mean that women are relatively okay feminism's done a lot for me but at the moment I think it's not done enough for most women so even if there aren't any or too many personal battles for me there are battles for women that I feel like I should be fighting and uh, just to finish the slightly devil advocate section of the, of the conversation <laughs> why don't you call yourself an egalitarian or an oh. e- equalitist or whatever <laughs> I'm sure you know the answer to that. I do, but they, the <laughs> listeners might not. All right, all right. And it makes sense for you to say it as the woman <laughs> rather than me, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> because to call yourself an egalitarian or a humanist is to deny fundamental inequality that is there. It's to say that everybody is suffering the same. Everybody does suffer. But there the odds are stacked against women as a group you know just from conception you know that you know people aborting fetuses because they're female we you know as a group we're oppressed even if some of us are quite privileged and to call yourself an egalitarian is to sort of deny that group oppression you can call yourself an egalitarian as well as a feminist uh, <laughs> but I, I think you know the, I think the femme is important and I agree with that because female people have got it worse but even in terms of the relationship of feminism and patriarchy is that that, that that as we were sort of hinting at earlier on you know the worst things that happen to men are the result of having to be male yeah. I think like you, you know why why is it that men are going over and being killed in wars like why why are men being objectified to the extent that we are just becoming objects of warfare well that's kind of very macho patriarchal yeah. culture that is that breeds that not that not that I, I fear that even if we get full equality it will turn out that if women run run the world as equally with men they'll do just as bad a job of it potentially That's the I think thing we'll I do just as bad a job in a different way yeah <laughs> well maybe I mean I'd like I'd definitely like to see what would happen if we had women in charge for a bit well, look at Scandinavian countries they're, they're doing quite well on childcare <laughs> That's true. Unfortunately for feminists, you know, the, the, the examples of, of, of female leaders gives us Thatcher straight away. And then Thatcher's not my fault. <laughs> I wouldn't say, yeah, no, absolutely. And then Angela, my Angela left Merkel the UK still pretty Thatcher. That's the main reason I was born in France. Right. <laughs> and well, now we're back and it's worse. Um. <laughs> yeah, well, this administration is certainly uh, Thatcher. I'm, I'm calling them Thatcher Plus at the moment. They are, they're really bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's true. So. 
the, the last question I ask people really is, do you have anything to plug? Okay. How long into the future is this coming out? I don't know. Okay. Partly that will be determined by what you plug. Okay. But, but, prob- but at least a few weeks. In October, probably on the 12th and the 13th, we're having Northeast Feminist Gathering number two. So if you're a woman in the Northeast, you should come. And if you're a man in the Northeast, you should tell your female friends to go and be very supportive. <laughs> Uh, there's probably going to be open Mary nights every month in Newcastle, which you should look out for. Do you um, have a venue yet? Yeah? We don't know. Okay, that's um, okay. Anyway, they're changing around. We've done them at the Angelou Centre, but we're not going to do them there every time. Well, keep me posted and I can give them a proper, like the actual venue as a little addition after I have a blog. Nina has moved her writing to a new home from the one that she gave at the time. You can find it at 52stories.tumblr.com. She's also occasionally writing for a feminist online publication called Quail Pipe, which you can find at www.quailpipe.co.uk. She has started a podcast called I Don't Get, and it's basically about all the things that she doesn't understand. And every week she talks to some people and edits them down into a really slimline short form podcast between seven and 15 minutes generally and you can find that podcast on soundcloud where it's nina hyphen gray hyphen one and that's g-r-a-y if you are wanting to go to the northeast feminist conference that we were talking about in this episode i'm afraid they're out of tickets so sorry i didn't put this out earlier i held it back to now to promote that conference but it appears that I held it a little bit too long. And I write angrily <laughs> and sporadically. I, I put a short story on there every Sunday at the minute, although I didn't this Sunday because there was a power cut, so I'll have to put two on next Sunday. What's your Twitter handle? At Gorenina, G-O-U-R-E-N-I-N-A. Um, what else? Why is that? Why, why is that? How long have you got... <laughs> Okay, Gouren is Breton wrestling. I was uh, sort of, uh, not professional, but sort of national level wrestler from ages 11 to 16 until I got epilepsy. So I used to be European wrestling champion when I made that email handle and then Twitter handle. So why is there no circle of wrestling? Because <laughs> I thought we'd run out. Uh, we could also have a great, great big circle with wrestling and epilepsy and disability, but we don't have time. Yeah. A lot of my... Depression was down to epilepsy when I was 16 because I was housebound because I wasn't diagnosed and I couldn't go anywhere on my own and I couldn't see anyone other than my mum and much as I love her I don't want to spend 24 hours a day with her but anyway. I only started having epilepsy after someone punched me in the face in PE it might, it might just have been triggered by that Sure. I don't know I think the experience of epilepsy can make people depressed I think Yeah. because like, you don't know why you're feeling it what yeah. you're feeling and it I don't know I've never experienced epilepsy but it, it's not pleasant no that's, <laughs> I, I, that's what I but that's I'm, what I gather I'm mostly okay at the minute I was very ill when I was 16 and I had to stop wrestling which was bad because sort of wrestling is what kept me sane when I was being bullied I didn't have any friends at school but I would train three times a week and the people I trained with were they weren't my friends but they were as close to friends as I had and then being very good at something always makes you feel better so yeah. I was, I think I won the 
regional competition when I was 11 and I was in the national squad when I was 15 and we toured Scotland for the national team when I was 15 and I was entered in because in Scotland they don't have enough women wrestlers to have women categories so I was entered in all the male categories because I was light enough to be in the lightest category but then if you're light enough for that you're allowed in all the others so I entered the men's all weights at the Highland Games in Scotland and got crushed <laughs> because there are very burly fat men in Scotland Sure. Well, I mean, that is one of the ultimate inequalities that we can't actually do anything about. The strongest man is stronger than the strongest woman. But you probably kick my ass, so that's the thing. Patriarchy better watch out if you've trained, you know, years of trained wrestling. I'm not going to mess, certainly. I don't, I try really hard not to, you know, revert to pushing people around. Yeah, that's true. Because actually you get a lot further talking to people. That's right. But if yeah. I get really cross, I can just push you over. Okay, well, I won't. That's good. It's good to know that. You, yeah, that's it's good to know that you you've got the the power, but you're not using it. If, if only more people would do that. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, is there anything else that you want to plug? Um, something I've done that's going to be on the radio, but it's going to be like next week, so it's too late for this. Oh, there's a radio play I wrote which is still online somewhere. Epilepsy Action, who are a sort of charity organisation for epilepsy awareness, ran a competition to write radio plays. I've never written a radio play, but my mum said I should enter. So I wrote basically what happened to me in the year before I was diagnosed. And that won that competition, and it was made by the Ilkley players a couple of years ago. So that's somewhere out there. I think it's called Diagnose It Yourself, and it'll be on the Epilepsy Action Radio Day website somewhere. I'll track down that, that <laughs> link, and that'll be in the show notes. I'm glad we managed to even cover circles that weren't there. Like It seems to me that wrestling and epilepsy definitely should have been down. Oh. But um, I'm not going to start critiquing uh, your very excellent... Uh, guides to how to interview. <laughs> I've sort of left the feminism to the end so that we didn't alienate people at the beginning, but it doesn't mean it's not important. <laughs> so, the last thing I ask people to do... Oh, it's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you. And with you. Uh, and the last thing I ask people to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Bye, audience. Bye. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at GBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook... It's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. And on the Stitcher Smart Radio app that you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the App Store. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.